his essay, The Transmission of Divine Revelation, Joseph Ratzinger had the following to say, The whole spiritual experience of the Church, its believing, praying, and loving intercourse with the Lord and His Word, causes our understanding of the original truth to grow, and in the today of faith extracts anew from the yesterday of its historical origin what was meant for all time, and yet can be understood only in the changing ages and in the particular way of each. That's Joseph Ratzinger. My name is Matt Shaminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. So the topic of today's episode is John Henry Newman's theory or his thinking regarding the development of Christian doctrine. One of the things that he's most known for and something in a way that Ratzinger was just speaking to um, in his commentary on Dei Verbum, the document from the Second Vatican Council. And so just to put a finer point on this by, by an example, perhaps, we could think about something like the Eucharist, obviously absolutely central, you know, the source and summit of the church's life. Yet we might think about the doctrine of transubstantiation, um, you know, that the accidental properties of the Eucharistic bread and wine remain the same while substantially it is transformed into the fullness of the presence of Christ under the auspices and, and appearance of bread and wine. And we have to think about the fact that, you know, transubstantiation, that terminology, even though it's a long-standing uh, doctrine of the church, wasn't present in the patristic era, wasn't present in the apostolic era. And so we might have to wonder, and people have challenged the church on this over uh, the past couple centuries, uh, we have to wonder, you know, is the doctrine of transubstantiation a corruption of gospel purity by ancient Greek philosophical terminology? and sort of the rigidity of scholasticism? Or, alternatively, is it the result of people of a certain time and place articulating in a particular way the perennial belief of the Church regarding the Eucharist as being Christ's true and full presence in a sacramental fashion, so that while this articulation at a certain point was new and developing, it's still entirely consistent with with the past, with, with the church's original belief, such that while St. Paul might not have ever used the term transubstantiation, he nonetheless would have assented to it. He would have seen it as a, a natural uh, outgrowth of the church's nascent Eucharistic belief, and that its articulation just took time, and it took uh, dialogue, and it took thinking, and it took people going back and forth about the reality of the Eucharist until finally the Church, you know, officially makes this part of her doctrine, of her teaching, of her magisterial inheritance. And so Newman himself would say that this development of doctrine is is just the process by which, under the magisterium of the Church, implicit faith becomes explicit. And so that, that's just sort of a, a, a way of, of starting to uh, work our way into this topic of the development of Christian doctrine. Um, someone much more able to dive into this deeply and fully, uh, and my, my guest for today's episode is Bud Marr, who is director of the National Institute for Newman Studies located in the beautiful city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Bud is also associate editor of the Newman Studies Journal, 
and he holds a doctorate in historical theology from St. Louis University. And so I really enjoyed speaking with Bud about this facet, uh, this central facet of Newman's life and work, uh, which was impactful not only for Newman intellectually, but very much personally. This notion mattered for him uh, as he transitioned from his time as an Anglican uh, through his conversion into uh, the Catholic Church. So here's Bud beginning talking about the personal relevance for him of Newman's idea of the development of doctrine. So I grew up evangelical Protestant, and when I started to study church history, it caused some cognitive dissonance for me because there were things that I was told in youth that didn't seem to square with what I was studying. So my patron saint is Ignatius of Antioch, and uh, I had been taught you know, that the first Christians were on fire and they had a pure faith, but things became corrupted later on. And when I read Ignatius' letters from the second century, they sounded very, very Catholic to me. So this got me thinking about things like uh, the continuity of teaching and what it means for the church to be one across time. But when I first had that exploration, the Catholic Church seemed so foreign, it didn't seem like an option for me. Uh, That was until I was exposed to the writings of now St. John Henry Newman. And it was through reading Newman's essay on the development of doctrine that uh, he helped me to make sense of how certain things in the Catholic faith that maybe aren't explicit in Scripture are really not corruptions, but organic developments of what Christ taught to the apostles. So Newman was instrumental in my coming into the Catholic Church. And when I decided to do doctoral studies or graduate school in theology, I wanted to pick something that meant a lot to me. And so Newman was a natural place to land. Wow. So our topic of today's discussion between you and I is is perfect then. Uh, the essay on the development of Christian doctrine. So it's obviously had a personal impact on you, but could you give us a maybe a broader idea of what the whole essay is about to begin with? Sure. So Newman, when he was still an Anglican, he was baptized in the Church of England and was a minister in the Anglican Church for many years. He had a theory that the Church of England or Anglicanism was a middle way between Protestant errors and then what he called Catholic corruptions. And for him, the major mistake of the Catholic Church was that it claimed infallibility, that it could teach without error. And in doing so, it went beyond the apostolic heritage. He said what's binding on us is you know, like the first seven ecumenical councils of the church. But as Newman started to have a crisis of faith about his place in Anglicanism, he started to think about this idea of development. And in his book, the major metaphor that he uses is he says, sometimes when we think about a stream, we say that it's purest near the source where the stream begins. But when we think about faith, it's more, the, a better image is more like a raging river that picks up steam and becomes stronger and has a sort of like life or fullness as it moves down the stream. And so Newman starts to work out this idea that some of the things that he formerly thought were corruptions were organic developments. And what he means by that is you think about something like an acorn that grows into a tree. Is the full tree, is that something different than the acorn? No, it's really the mature development of the acorn such that, you know, if it had always remained an acorn, it would have been stunted and not achieved the full life that was intended for it. And he says later doctrinal developments in the church are really the church 
working out the implications of that deposit of faith that Christ gave to the apostles. So what are some specific doctrines that he looked at within the church that at first gave him cause for concern that later he would have seen as being this outgrowth, this development? Well, I think two examples that we could point to and that really stand out to us today are you think about the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, that Our Lady was free from the stain of original sin from the very moment of her conception, and then also the doctrine of her assumption, body and soul, into heaven. The Church dogmatically defined the first in 1854, and the second, the doctrine of the Assumption in 1850. So some Protestants, even well-meaning ones, will say things like, ha-ha, like you guys sort of invented this in the 19th and 20th centuries. And what Newman would say in return is, is no, like these um, are rooted in very ancient traditions in the church. Um, there were specific reasons why the church decided to promulgate a specific definition at a specific point in time. But really what we believe about the Immaculate Conception, he would say the nuts and bolts of that belief are there from the very beginning. The fact that the church uses language that's so to speak, newer, is like I said, um, like he really does consider the church to be like a living body. So just as a person grows in their understanding across time, so also does the body of Christ. I see. Well, how does he distinguish from, say, an authentic development such as the Immaculate Conception and something that would be seen as a corruption such as, or any of the heresies that have been identified and rejected over the centuries? Yeah, so Newman has these seven tests or notes that he includes in his essay. And he says these like um, continuity and principles, like vitality, that it's able to answer new questions that arise. These are all signs of an authentic development. The one thing that I would caution your listeners against, Newman is pretty upfront that it's hard to do this in real time. So it's not like there's sort of an equation where we can plug in and say, aha, this is an authentic development. This is more like we can see these things looking back on church history. So that might sound like a sleight of hand, but Newman, as he does his theology, as he lives out his life in the church, he always has this abiding sense that God is providentially guiding the church. So even during very difficult times, Newman counsels, for instance, the people he's writing letters to, like, have faith, trust that God is still in control. And he rests in the fact that if you look back at church history, that he says, he quotes Augustine, the church stands secure in its universal judgment. So we, I mean, it's a little bit circular, but we know what the church believes by what the church teaches. And we trust that God is guiding the church, not that there's not serious arguments and wrestling and debate during the process, but that the end result will be um, a trustworthy affirmation of how best to interpret uh, what the church believes. It's interesting. You, you brought up the sort of the wrestling back and forth between personalities within the church uh, throughout different, you know, epochal yeah. moments uh, of importance. So for Newman, that's really important though, right? This personal, mind to mind, heart to heart exchange, right? It's not sort of a mathematical sort of uh, universal in, um, set of principles, like you would say, certain f- mathematical um, uh, yeah. truths that abide uh, across the century. So, how does he 
view this personal encounter uh, of, again, minds exchanging their ideas to other minds and hearts revealing themselves to other hearts? Why is that so important for him? So to put uh, flesh on these bones, to flesh this out a bit, Newman was genuinely concerned about what he saw taking place at the First Vatican Council, which was an ecumenical council held in 1869 and 1870. And there was a group at the council, they're now given the name Ultramontanes, but they just held a very high view of papal authority. And they wanted to pass a, a, a proclamation that almost made the Pope into a kind of oracle that was receiving direct revelation from God. And Newman said that's not really the best way to understand how the Pope functions, like what his role is in the Catholic Church. And so Newman had a very dynamic, like personal understanding of the life of the Church. And he pointed to past historical examples, say, for instance, like the Arian crisis, where there were some Christians in the early, early Church who were doubting the divinity of Christ. He said in that past example, um, it was the sense of the faithful, the entire body of believers who upheld what today we consider orthodoxy. So as the church discerns these things, it's not that the Pope receives direct revelation from God and then he sends that down from on high. This really is kind of a lively organic process. And ideally, even the pastors of the church would seek the sense of the faithful because Newman says the devotion of the faithful is really one way that the church discerns uh, what it's what what it should believe. Um, you know, again, when we talk about these things, we're thinking about how how are we to understand uh, the revelation that God has given us. I'm wondering if you know if, if we sort of tease this out a bit. Right, there's this idea that uh, as the church's sense and understanding of revelation develops and expands and deepens over time, like the, the, the sort of surgings of that, of that river. Could we say in a certain way in light of Newman's work that we presently understand revelation and its fullness better than say St. Paul or Athanasius or Augustine, or is that an incorrect way of reading Newman? Yeah. Newman actually addresses this question that you asked Matt directly in one of his letters and the answer that he gives has always been fascinating to me. Before I share his answer, if we can take a step back, one image that Newman gives about development is he says the church's understanding is akin to a person sitting in a room at, a, um, at the start of the day. And so say before the sun rises, the person is sitting in a dark room and they give one description of the objects in the room. As the sun rises and the light in the room increases, their description will change and it will develop. And it's not that those earlier descriptions were false, but that the new ones provide a fuller understanding. And so this comes up, um, this was on Newman's mind because, again, the, the, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception was defined in 1854. And so he asked, uh, would St. Paul, I believe, St. Paul or St. Peter, I think he says St. Paul, have believed in the Immaculate Conception? And Newman says, of course, some of the language that you, that's used there is scholastic and it wouldn't have made sense to him. But if you unpacked what each term meant, such that the belief is, again, the mother of, of our Lord was free from the corruption of sin from the moment of her conception. Newman says once it was explained to him, he would have believed it. Right. So, you know, Peter 
or maybe Polycarp or, you know, an early church father wouldn't have used the term transubstantiation, but they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have balked at it, right? Once it was unpacked for them, right? Regarding the Eucharist. Transubstantiation is using the language of its time to explain what the, the apostles always believed. Now, there are ways in which things have become fuller and we could say have even changed. So I think it would be wrongheaded to think of the first apostles like praying the rosary right. while Mary was still alive. Or right. we know, for instance, that the first uh, Eucharist were not celebrated at a marble altar, you know, in a large basilica. But I think as Catholics, we want to affirm pretty strongly that those later developments really were affirmations. For instance, this that everything that built up around the liturgy that uh, is more elaborate, or like I said, rather than celebrating maybe at a wooden table using a solid stone altar, all of that points to the fact that this meal that we celebrate is not simply a meal, but is also a representation of the sacrifice of Calvary. And so again, the church is kind of understanding the implications of its own practice. And then these developments take place that are really authentic expressions of what it's been doing from the very beginning. Right. I'm wondering, uh, maybe changing gears a little bit, if you've seen in the recent past or maybe even uh, farther back um, misinterpretations of Newman's ideas regarding the development of doctrine, or do people sort of put his work or some version, their version of, of his ideas uh, to their own ends that seem to run contrary to his intention and purpose? I think that's right. I've read in different periodicals, which shall remain nameless in this podcast, um, some commentators and theologians using Newman's theory of development and kind of giving the impression that anything could change. Whereas for Newman, he never sees development as the reversal of what occurred beforehand. I mean, really, to be honest, Matt, this like gets us into some of like the hot button topics of today. Sure. Uh, but even something like, I mean, for myself, the ordination of women, um, I've, I've seen theologians use Newman's theory of development to say like the church could radically change what it understands about the priesthood. And uh, Newman was never posed this question at the time. It wasn't a live question for him. But I think what he says about continuity of principle and really, uh, this idea, like if I could go back to the example of the acorn growing into a tree, um, there has to be an underlying continuity across time. And some of the proposal, proposals that I've seen floated would really be more so reversals than they would be organic developments. Right. And I'm also wondering, you mentioned earlier, um, the sense of the faithful. And you know, I'm wondering if there's a connection there with Newman's epistemological categories of uh, real and, and notional assent as far as, you know, how people receive the faith or, or assent to it. So is there a connection there between his sort of that, that grammar of assent type work and then his understanding of the reception of the faith for uh, the people of God? There is a connection. In his famous philosophical work, The Grammar of Assent, he talks about notional understanding or assent, which is um, understanding an idea in the abstract. And then real is to um, have a sort of concrete experience of, of an idea or a thing in reality. So Newman says that theology oftentimes is notional because what it's trying to do is provide a sort of intellectual grasp of ideas that are posed 
But he says the devotion of the faithful is real. So it's not simply, do I comprehend what the doctrine of the Trinity is affirming? But do I have a real ongoing relationship? Am I being drawn into the eternal communion of Father, Son, Holy Spirit? And so all the kind of devotional elements of the church make real what the church believes. And it's not that notional understanding is, is bad or, or limited, but you always want to push, especially in the realm of faith, to, to the real. Right. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. So you need, you need the notional first, right? Or at least some sense of, of the idea, right? Yeah. And, and then sort of press into the, into the real. Um, yeah, and it's, all, it's oftentimes the devotion of the faithful that settles some of these doctrinal disputes. So, for instance, I, me- I mentioned the Arian crisis earlier right. and this question about whether our Lord was fully human and fully divine. And what was one of the deciding factors is that in the liturgy, we worship Christ. And it would be idolatrous to worship anything less than God, to worship a creature. And so Athanasius and others actually pointed to liturgical practice to settle the theological dispute. Right, and that had implications for, or so the, the, the popular piety and litur- liturgical dimension in the Immaculate Conception, I'm thinking as well, and the assumption, right, that there have been liturgies, you know, in the ancient East and what, and, and all, uh, with sort of them at the heart of, of their, of their celebration. That's right. The feast of the Dormition of the Assumption of Our Lady goes way back. And, um, yeah, the devotion of the faithful was key. And I think in our own day, we run a risk sometimes of turning lit- liturgy into just this functional thing. Like mm-hmm. we have our catechism and then in this other area, we, we have like our worship life. Whereas um, the fathers of the church and many of the great theologians throughout the church's history, they always look to the liturgy as one of the primary sources of understanding what the church believes, Lex Rondi, Lex Credendi. Exactly. Right. That's what, that's what I was just thinking. Um, you know what I, I was thinking about Newman's work in this regard, for some reason, limbo came to mind. Um, maybe because I was teaching Dante in the fall and, you know, there's sort of that natural uh, blessed state uh, that could be called limbo. So, you know, how do we look at something like that? I'll still have students think that limbo is part of official Catholic doctrine and, you know, I, you know, uh, teach them otherwise, but it still lingers, right? So why would a doctrine like that still sort of hang around a bit? Yeah, I think with the doctrine of limbo, it really is a case of this where sacred scripture doesn't provide a real explicit answer about what might happen to those who have committed no personal sin but die before they receive baptism. And the Catholic Church has always affirmed that baptism is necessary for salvation with appropriate nuances. You know, we have things like the baptism of desire and baptism of blood. But I'm someone who, like in some ways, I entertain limbo as kind of a pious belief in the sense that it really is theologians trying to, trying to answer these questions that are raised by what we do know from Revelation. Now, I think in recent years, the church has, for good reason, say, said, you know, like in the case of infants who die before the age of reason, we have strong reasons from Scripture, from Revelation, to trust that God's mercy will draw them into the fullness of divine life. 
but it is it is a case of like development where the case was kind of tested and i think the church in its wisdom has said you know this is something that maybe we either can't fully answer or there are other parts of revelation that that push in a different direction and it's interesting that earlier you brought up the liturgical aspect of, of this whole idea of development because for infants that died before baptism, the prayers of the church seem to be rather confident in those children resting in, in sort of the blessedness of God. Um, yeah, that's right. So that's right. It's, it's interesting to see that play out in real time before our eyes. Um, yeah, and I think the kind of questions that you're raising, Matt, and the sort of issues that circle around the whole idea of development are live ones. And so, for instance, in recent years, popes have placed a different emphasis on how the church should, should witness to the dignity of life in relation to capital punishment or the death penalty. And of course, um, I'm sure many of your listeners know that Pope Francis even revised um, some of the content of the catechism regarding that question. And so I do think uh, theologians have a role to play in saying, how do we, so to speak, like square what the catechism says now with what the tradition said across, about that matter across time. And I, I think as Catholics, we don't have to be worried about that kind of work. Like that, that is the proper work of theologians. Newman says theologians are sort of like lawyers applying the constitution. Like here, here are the laws, here, are the, here is how they're applied out on the ground and sort of the limitations of the principles that are in place. One of the more famous, well, I guess there's really two, rather well-known phrases from this work of Newman. Maybe we could just touch on them briefly or however long you would want. Um, the first has to do with to know history being, uh, I'm sorry, I'm butchering it, right? Uh, to know history is to cease to be Protestant. And then the other one has to do with, um, you know, the notion of, of to have become perfect is to have changed often. Um, so I don't know if you could touch on either of those or both of those. Sure. So Newman says early on in his essay that to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. I can touch on that one because it really gets into my own personal spiritual journey. Um, Today, every community of Christians, every communion, I think, has to recognize some sort of theory of development. Like we can't, no matter how much you think your statement of faith is just lifting the text off of scripture uh all of us like there's always an onus upon a church body to interpret what that means like a book by itself doesn't provide an, an, an interpretation and when newman said to be deep in history is to cease to be protestant he thought if you went back historically what the major protestant communions teach just the more you studied history, the more you would find the substance of the Catholic faith. And, um, you know, I mean, that's, that sounds a little bit unecumenical to our own ears. But really, I think Newman, he wanted to, to draw a firm line in the sand. And then the rest of the essay is sort of a working out or like trying to prove that point. The second one, to be perfect, is to have changed often. Uh, this one can be misunderstood kind of along the lines that I was talking about earlier, where um, development takes on the tone of radical change. Newman throws out another phrase in the same section of that text where he says that the church changed in order to remain the same. So to get back to the Arian crisis one more time, the, her- the heretic Arius was willing to affirm any statement of scripture, 
as these debates were taking place, his opponents would place for, before him a statement of scripture. Oh yeah, I believe that. I believe that. It wasn't until the church said that the son of God is homoousios or consubstantial with the father that Arius said, no, 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 I'm not willing to go there. So the church actually had to use extra biblical language to affirm what it believed. And so in that case, Newman said the church changed. It provided new language to understand the person of Christ, but it was actually upholding what the true belief was from the very beginning. Very nice. So Newman thought we couldn't maintain orthodoxy solely by sola scriptura, and I think um, he had a real point there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe a, a final question or, or close to a final question that's probably really difficult with someone like Newman because he was so prolific and not just in his writings, but in his own sort of personal witness and the uniqueness of his personality. But what would you say makes Newman a shaper of the Catholic imagination or the Catholic vision? One of my favorite books, devotional books of all time, is a book called Abandonment to Divine Providence. And when you get into Newman's letters and the details of his life, I would say that he lived out this idea of abandonment to divine providence and in the early 1830s, he took a trip to the Mediterranean, and he became really sick. He probably had typhoid fever and almost died. And when his life was spared, Newman believed, A, that the sickness had been sent as a kind of chastisement to curb his self-will, but B, that God still had an important mission for him to do in England. Now, at the time, Newman didn't fully understand all that God had prepared for him to do, but he wrote this um, famous poem, and um, part of the poem has been pulled out and turned into a popular hymn called Lead Kindly Light. And Newman said, you know, Lord, I don't need to know all the future. Just one step ahead is enough for me. But he believed that this kindly light was leading him amidst the, the encircling gloom. And the rest of his life, no matter what took place, like if you get into the nitty gritty of Newman's life, he had to face a lot of personal and professional failures. But he always believed that God was guiding him, that God had an important work for him to do. So even if he lost friends, if uh, he became sick, if he was a failure professionally, that God knew what he was about and was leading him to a specific end. I think Newman also took that idea and he applied it to a life in the church. So as, as people wrote to him and said, I'm really struggling with this, that, or the other, Newman always counseled trust. And like I said, always counseled like keep the long view of things. When Vatican I took place, he said, this isn't the last pope. This isn't the last council. God will su- supply what we need in the future. And I think uh, in our own day and age, as the church has faced certain scandals of a different sort, or even as we struggle with faith, you know, whatever comes up that causes us to have a kind of doubt about particular points, that that kind of um, unwavering trust in God's providence that Newman modeled uh, is an important example to us. And this is a brilliant guy who didn't shy away from confronting like the philosophies of his time or the challenges of skeptics, but he started from a place of faith. And I think that gave, uh, gave a certain power to the, the dialogues that he had and the, the answers that he gave. And then maybe lastly, could you just give us a, an idea of what the National Institute for Newman Studies does uh, out there in Pittsburgh? Sure. Uh, NINS is in the heart of Pittsburgh. It's a research library where scholars can visit and stay and use um, 
use our library to, to learn more and to write on Newman. But we also try to host programming that we hope is of interest to Catholics from all across the board, Catholics in the pews. So if you're interested in learning more about St. John Henry Newman, I would encourage your listeners to visit our website, newmanstudies.org. One cool piece there is that we've got a digital collections where you can look directly at Newman's handwritten manuscripts. So a lot there to, to dig into, and you'll also learn about our programming there. Thanks to Bud Marr for his time and insight into the life and work of John Henry Newman. I, I would encourage you to go on the website for the National Institute for Newman Studies and take a look at all of the documents they have available uh, there, um, both uh, in, in digital form, but also it's, it's quite interesting to look at Newman's handwritten letters, for example. And if you're in any way self-conscious about the legibility of your own penmanship, such as me, uh, you'll, you'll get a boost of confidence looking at Newman's scrawl. Uh, but once you get once, once you start picking up on what he's writing, it, it is quite interesting. It's just, um, you know, in, in a way moving to see his handwritten, his handwritten work there. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that the the Institute is in Pittsburgh and I went to the University of Pittsburgh. And so the, the Newman Studies Library is just off campus of the University of Pittsburgh, located in a great, great spot of the city. You have the beautiful St. Paul's Cathedral for the Diocese of Pittsburgh nearby. The, um, the Newman Center for the University of Pittsburgh is located near uh, the Newman Studies uh, Institute. And uh, it's actually staffed by oratorians, which was the order that John Henry Newman brought to England. Um, and so um, it, it's quite interesting to have oratorian staffing your Newman Center if you are a University of Pittsburgh student. So next episode, we'll continue looking at John Henry Newman uh, with a, um, another interview. And of course, Newman's life and work is so rich that we can, we can sit with him for some time here over, over a, a couple episodes. And then after that, I'm actually working on putting together some interviews and episodes on John Dunn Scotus. So uh, someone who is lesser known than than others. Uh, so I'll be excited to, to put those episodes together as we move forward. If you could, um, you know, if, if you listen to this episode or others and, and, and have liked them and, and thought they were worthwhile, please help the show out by spreading the word. Maybe you could... Uh, you know, tell a friend or family member about it in some way, shape, or form, and uh, encourage them to take a look at, at the podcast. So again, next episode, we'll, we'll continue looking at John Henry Newman. Until then, let's continue journeying further up and further in. <laughs>